Chapter Eighteen of the Lamplighter. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Bridget Gage. The Lamplighter by Maria Susanna Cummins. Chapter Eighteen. Is it not lovely? Tell me where doth dwell the fay that wrought so beautiful a spell. In thine own bosom, brother, didst thou say? Then cherish as thine own so good a fay, Dana. A few weeks after the date of this letter, Gertie learned through George, who went daily to the city to attend to the marketing, that Mrs. Sullivan had left word at the shop of our old acquaintance, the rosy-cheeked butcher, that she had received a letter from Willie, and wanted Gertie to come into town and see it. Emily was willing to let her go, but afraid it would be impossible to arrange it, as Charlie, the only horse Mr. Graham kept, was in use, and she saw no way of sending her. "'Why don't you let her go in the omnibus?' asked Mrs. Ellis. Gertie looked gratefully at Mrs. Ellis. It was the first time that lady had ever seemed anxious to promote her views. "'I don't think it's safe for her to go alone in the coach,' said Emily. "'Safe? What, for that great girl?' exclaimed Mrs. Ellis, whose position in the family was such that there were no forms of restraint in her intercourse with Miss Graham. "'Do you think it is?' inquired Emily. "'She seems a child to me, to be sure.' But as you say, she is almost grown up, and I dare say is capable of taking care of herself. Gertrude, are you sure you know the way from the omnibus office in Boston to Mrs. Sullivan's? Perfectly well, Miss Emily. Without further hesitation, two tickets for the coach were put into Gertrude's hand, and she set forth on her expedition with beaming eyes and a full heart. She found Mrs. Sullivan and Mr. Cooper well, and rejoicing over the happiest tidings from Willie who, after a long but agreeable voyage, had reached Calcutta in health and safety. A description of his new home, his new duties, and employers, filled all the rest of the letter, excepting what was devoted to affectionate messages and inquiries, a large share of which were for Gertie. Gertrude stayed and dined with Mrs. Sullivan, and then hastened to the omnibus. She took her seat, and as she waited for the coach to start, amused herself with watching the passers-by. It was nearly three o'clock, and she was beginning to think she should be the only passenger, when she heard a strange voice proceeding from a person whose approach she had not perceived. She moved towards the door, and saw, standing at the back of the coach, the most singular-looking being she had ever beheld. It was an old lady, small, and considerably bent with years. Gertrude knew, at a glance, that the same original mind must have conceived and executed every article— of the most remarkable toilet she had ever witnessed. But before she could observe the details of that which was as a whole so wonderfully grotesque, her whole attention was arrested by the peculiar behavior of the old lady. She had been vainly endeavoring to mount the inconvenient vehicle, and now, with one foot upon the lower step, was calling to the driver to come to her assistance. "'Sir,' said she, in measured tones, is this travelling equipage under your honourable charge? What say, marm? Yes, I'm the driver. Saying which, he came up to the door, opened it, and without waiting for the polite request which was on the old lady's lips, placed his hand beneath her elbow, and before she was aware of his intention, lifted her into the coach and shut the door. Bless me! ejaculated she, as she seated herself opposite Gertrude, and began to arrange her veil and other draperies. That individual is not versed in the art of assisting a lady without detriment to her habiliments. Oh, dear, oh, dear, added she in the same breath. I've lost my parasol. She rose as she spoke, 
but the sudden starting of the coach threw her off balance, and she would have fallen, had it not been for Gertrude, who caught her by the arm, and reseated her, saying as she did so, "'Do not be alarmed, madame. Here is the parasol.' As she spoke she drew into view the missing article, which, though nearly the size of an umbrella, was fastened to the old lady's waist by a green ribbon, and having slipped out of place, was supposed lost. And not a parasol only did she thus bring to light. Numerous other articles, arranged in the same manner, and connected with the same green string, now met Gertrude's astonished eyes. A reticule of unusual dimensions, and a great variety of colors. A black lace cap, a large feather fan, a roll of fancy paper, and several other articles. They were partly hidden under a thin black silk shawl, and Gertrude began to think her companion had been on a pilfering expedition. If so, however, the culprit seemed remarkably at her ease, for before the coach had gone many steps, she deliberately placed her feet on the opposite seat, and proceeded to make herself comfortable. In the first place, much to Gertrude's horror, she took out all her teeth and put them in her work-bag, then drew off a pair of black silk gloves, and replaced them by cotton ones removed her lace veil, folded and pinned it to the green string. She next untied her bonnet, threw over it, as a protection from the dust, a large cotton handkerchief, and with some difficulty, unloosing her fan, applied herself so diligently to the use of it, closing her eyes as she did so, and evidently intending to go to sleep. She probably did fall into a doze, for she was very quiet, and Gertrude, occupied with her own thoughts, and with observing some heavy clouds that were arising from the west, forgot to observe her fellow-traveller, until she was startled by a hand suddenly laid upon her own, and an abrupt exclamation of, "'My dear young damsel, do not those dark shadows betoken adverse weather?' "'I think it will rain very soon,' replied Gertrude. "'This morn, when I ventured forth,' soliloquized the old lady, "'the sun was bright, the sky serene.' Even the winged songsters, as they piped their hymns, proclaimed their part in the universal joy. And now, before I can regain my retirement, my delicate lace flounces, and she glanced at the skirt of her dress, will prove a sacrifice to the pitiless storm. "'Doesn't the coach pass your door?' inquired Gertrude, her compassion excited by the old lady's evident distress. "'No, oh no, not within half a mile. Does it better accommodate you, my young miss?' No, I have a mile to walk beyond the omnibus office. The old lady, moved by a deep sympathy, drew nearer to Gertrude, saying, in the most doleful accents, Alas, for the delicate whiteness of your bonnet ribbon. The coach had by this time reached its destination, and the two passengers alighted. Gertrude placed her ticket in the driver's hand, and would have started at once on her walk, but was prevented by the old lady, who grasped her dress, and begged her to wait for her, as she was going the same way. And now great difficulty and delay ensued. The old lady refused to pay the amount of fare demanded by the driver, declared it was not the regular fare, and accused the man of an intention to put the surplus of two cents in his own pocket. Gertrude was impatient, for she was every moment expecting to see the rain pour in torrents. But at last, the matter being compromised between the driver and his closely calculating passenger, she was permitted to proceed. They had walked about a quarter of a mile, and that at a very slow rate, when the rain commenced falling, and now Gertrude was called upon to unloose the huge parasol, and carry it over her companion and herself. In this way they had accomplished nearly as much more of the distance, when the water began to descend as if all the reservoirs of heaven were at once thrown open, 
At this moment, Gertrude heard a step behind them, and turning, she saw George, Mr. Graham's man, running in the direction of the house. He recognized her at once, and exclaimed, "'Miss Gertrude, you'll be wet through. And Miss Pace, too,' added he, seeing Gertie's companion. "'Sure, and you'd better bathe hasten to her house, where you'll be secure.' So saying, he caught Miss Pace in his arms, and signing to Gertrude to follow, rushed across the street, and hurrying on to a cottage nearby, did not stop until he had placed the old lady in safety beneath her own porch, and Gertie at the same instant gained its shelter. Miss Pace, for such was the old lady's name, was so bewildered that it took her some minutes to recover her consciousness, and in the meantime it was arranged that Gertrude should stop where she was for an hour or two, and that George should call for her when he passed that way with a carriage, on his return from the depot, where he went regularly on three afternoons in the week for Mr. Graham. Miss Patty Pace was not generally considered a person of much hospitality. She owned the cottage which she occupied, and lived there quite alone, keeping no servants, and entertaining no visitors. She herself was a famous visitor, and, as but a small part of her life had been passed in D, and all her friends and connections lived either in Boston or at a much greater distance, she was a constant frequenter of omnibuses and other public vehicles. But though, through her travelling propensities, and her regular attendance at church, she was well known. Gertrude was, perhaps, the first visitor that had ever entered her house, and she, as we have seen, could scarcely be said to have come by invitation. Even when she was at the very door, she found herself obliged to take the old lady's key, unlock and open it herself, and finally lead her hostess into the parlour, and help her off with her innumerable capes, shawls, and veils. Once come to a distinct consciousness of her situation, however, and Miss Patty Pace conducted herself with all the elegant politeness for which she was remarkable. Suffering though she evidently was, with a thousand regrets, at the trying experience her own clothes had sustained, she commanded herself sufficiently to express nearly as many fears, lest Gertrude had ruined every article of her dress. It was only after many assurances from the latter that her boots were scarcely wet at all, her gingham dress and cape not likely to be hurt by rain, and her nice straw bonnet safe under the scarf she had thrown over it, that Miss Patty could be prevailed upon to so far forget the duties of a hostess as to retire and change her lace flounces for something more suitable for homeware. As soon as she left the room, Gertrude, whose curiosity was wonderfully excited, hastened to take a nearer view of numbers of articles both of ornament and use, which had already attracted her attention from their odd and singular appearance. Miss Pace's parlour was as remarkable as its owner. Its furniture, like her apparel, was made up of the gleanings of every age and fashion, from chairs that undoubtedly came over in the Mayflower, to feeble attempts at modern pincushions, and imitations of crystallized grass, that were a complete failure. Gertrude's quick and observing eye was reveling amid the few relics of ancient elegance, and the numerous specimens of folly and bad taste with which the room was filled, when the old lady returned. A neat though quaint black dress having taken the place of the much-valued flounces, she now looked far more ladylike. She held in her hand a tumbler of pepper and water, and begged her visitor to drink, assuring her it would warm her stomach and prevent her taking cold. And when Gertrude, who could only with great difficulty keep from laughing in her face, declined the beverage, Miss Patty seated herself, and while enjoying the refreshment, carried on a conversation which at one moment satisfied her visitor she was a woman of sense, and the next persuaded her that she was either foolish or insane. 
The impression which Gertrude made upon Miss Patty, however, was more decided. Miss Patty was delighted with the young miss, who, she declared, possessed an intellect that would do honor to a queen, a figure that was airy as a gazelle, and motions more graceful than those of a swan. When George came for Gertrude, Miss Pace, who seemed really sorry to part with her, cordially invited her to come again, and Gertrude promised to do so. The satisfactory news from Willie, and the amusing adventures of the afternoon, had given to Gertrude such a feeling of buoyancy and light-heartedness that she bounded into the house and up the stairs, with that fairy quickness Uncle True had so loved to see in her, and which, since his death, her subdued spirits had rarely permitted her to exercise. She hastened to her own room to remove her bonnet and change her dress before seeking Emily, to whom she longed to communicate the events of the day. At the door of her room she met Bridget, the housemaid, with a dustpan, hand-broom, etc. On inquiring what was going on there at this unusual hour, she learned that during her absence her room, which had since their removal been in some confusion, owing to Mrs. Ellis not having decided what furniture should be placed there, had been subjected to a thorough and comprehensive system of spring-cleaning. Alarmed, though she scarcely knew why, at the idea of Mrs. Ellis having invaded her premises, she surveyed the apartment with a slight feeling of agitation, which, as she continued her observations, swelled into a storm of angry excitement. When Gertrude went from Mrs. Sullivan's to Mr. Graham's house in the city, she carried with her, beside a trunk containing her wardrobe, an old bandbox, which she stored away on the shelf of a closet in her chamber. There it remained during the winter, unpacked and unobserved by any one. When the family went into the country, however, the box went also, carefully watched and protected by its owner. As there was no closet or other hiding-place in Gertrude's new room, she placed it in a corner behind the bed, and the evening before her expedition to the city had been engaged in removing and inspecting a part of its contents. Each article was endeared to her by the charm of old association, and many a tear had the little maiden shed over her stock of valuables. There was the figure of the Samuel, Uncle True's first gift, now defaced by time and accident. As she surveyed a severe contusion on the back of the head, the effect of an inadvertent knock given to it by True himself, and remembered how patiently the dear old man labored to repair the injury, she felt that she would not part with a much-valued memento for the world. There, too, were his pipes, of common clay, and dark with smoke and age. But as she thought how much comfort they had been to him, she felt that the possession of them was a consolation to her. She had brought away, too, his lantern, for she had not forgotten its pleasant light, the first that ever fell upon the darkness of her life. Nor could she leave behind an old fur cap, beneath which she had often saw a kindly smile, and never having sought in vain, could hardly realize that there was not one for her still hidden beneath its crown. There were some toys, too, and picture-books, gifts from Willie, a little basket he had carved for her from a nut, and a few other trifles. All these things, excepting the lantern and cap, Gertrude had left upon the mantelpiece, and now, upon entering the room, her eye at once sought her treasures. They were gone. The mantelpiece was nicely dusted, and quite empty. She ran towards the corner where she had left the old box. That, too, was gone. To rush after the retreating housemaid, call her back, and pour forth a succession of eager inquiries, was but the work of an instant. Bridget was a newcomer, a remarkably stupid specimen, but Gertrude contrived to obtain from her all the information she needed. The image, the pipes, and the lantern were thrown among a heap of broken glass and crockery, and, as Bridget declared, smashed all to nothing. 
The cap, pronounced moth-eaten, had been condemned to the flames. And the other articles, Bridget could not be sure. But, troth, she believed she was just after leaving them in the fireplace. And all this in strict accordance with Mrs. Ellis's orders. Gertrude allowed Bridget to depart unaware of the greatness of her loss. Then, shutting the door, she threw herself upon the bed, and gave way to a violent fit of weeping. So this, thought she, was the reason why Mrs. Ellis was so willing to forward my plans. And I was foolish enough to believe it was for my own sake. She wanted to come here and rob me, the thief. She rose from the bed as suddenly as she had thrown herself down, and started for the door. Then, some new thought seeming to check her, she returned again to the bedside, and with a loud sob fell upon her knees, and buried her face in her hands. Once or twice she lifted her head, and seemed on the point of rising and going to face her enemy. But each time something came across her mind and detained her. It was not fear. Oh, no, Gertrude was not afraid of anybody. It must have been some stronger motive than that. Whatever it might be, it was something that had, on the whole, a soothing influence. For after every fresh struggle she grew calmer, and presently rising, seated herself in a chair by the window, leaned her head on her hand, and looked out. The window was open, the shower was over, and the smiles of the refreshed and beautiful earth were reflected in a glowing rainbow that spanned the eastern horizon. A little bird came and perched on a branch of a tree close to the window, and shouted forth a te deum. A Persian lilac bush in full bloom sent up a delicious fragrance. A wonderful composure stole into Gertrude's heart, and ere she had sat there many minutes, she felt the grace that brings peace succeed to the passions that produce trouble. She had conquered, she had achieved the greatest of earth's victories, a victory over herself. The brilliant rainbow, the carol of the bird, the fragrance of the blossoms, all the bright things that gladden the earth after the storm, were not half so beautiful as the light that overspread the face of the young girl when, the storm within her laid at rest, she looked up to heaven, and her heart sent forth its silent offering of praise. The sound of the tea-bell startled her. She hastened to bathe her face and brush her hair, and then went downstairs. There was no one in the dining-room but Mrs. Ellis. Mr. Graham had been detained in town, and Emily was suffering with a severe headache. Consequently, Gertrude took tea alone with Mrs. Ellis. The latter, though unaware of the great value Gertrude attached to her old relics, was conscious she had done an unkind thing, and as the injured party gave no evidence of anger or ill-will, not even mentioning the subject, the aggressor felt more uncomfortable and mortified than she would have been willing to allow. The matter was never recurred to, but Mrs. Ellis experienced a stinging consciousness of the fact that Gertrude had shown a superiority to herself in point of forbearance. The next day Mrs. Prince, the cook, came to the door of Emily's room, and obtaining a ready admittance, produced the little basket, made of a nut, saying, "'I wonder now, Miss Emily, where Miss Gertrude is, for I found her little basket in the coal-hod, and I guess she'll be right glad on it. Tain't her a mite.' Emily inquired, "'What basket?' and the cook, placing it in her hands, proceeded with eagerness to give an account of the destruction of Gertrude's property, which she herself had witnessed with great indignation. She also gave a piteous description of the distress the young girl manifested in her questioning of Bridget, which the sympathizing cook had overheard from her own not very distant chamber. As Emily listened to the story, she well remembered having thought, the previous afternoon, that she heard Gertrude sobbing in her room which on one side adjoined her own, but that afterwards she concluded herself to have been mistaken, 
"'Go,' said she, "'and carry the basket to Gertrude. "'She is in the little library. "'But please, Mrs. Prime, "'don't tell her that you have mentioned the matter to me.' "'Emily expected, for several days, "'to hear from Gertrude the story of her injuries, "'but Gertrude kept her trouble to herself, "'and bore it in silence. "'This was the first instance "'of complete self-control in Gertie, "'and the last we shall have occasion to dwell upon.' From this time she continued to experience more and more the power of governing herself, and with each new effort gaining new strength, became at last a wonder to those who knew the temperament she had had to contend with. She was now nearly fourteen years old, and so rapid had been her recent growth, that instead of being below the usual stature, she was taller than most girls of her age. Freedom from study, and plenty of air and exercise, prevented her, however, from suffering from this circumstance. Her garden was a source of great pleasure to her, and flowers seeming to prosper under her careful training, she had always a bouquet ready to place by Emily's plate at breakfast-time. Occasionally she went to see her friend Miss Patty Pace, and always met with a cordial reception. Miss Patty's attention was very much engrossed by the manufacture of paper flowers, and as Gertrude's garden furnished the models, she seldom went empty-handed. But the old lady's success, being very ill-proportioned to her efforts, it would have been a libel upon nature to pronounce even the most favorable specimens of this sort of fancy-work, true copies of the original. Miss Patty was satisfied, however, and it is to be hoped that her various friends, for whom the large bunches were intended that traveled about tied to her waist by the green string, were satisfied also. Miss Patty seemed to have a great many friends. Judging from the numbers of people that she talked about to Gertrude, the latter concluded she must be acquainted with everybody in Boston and it would have been hard to find any one whose intercourse expanded to a wider circle. She had in her youth learned an upholsterer's trade, which she had practiced for many years in the employment, as she said, of the first families in the city, and so observing was she, and so acute in her judgment, that a report at one time prevailed that Miss Pace had eyes in the back of her head, and two pairs of ears. Notwithstanding her wonderful visionary and comprehending powers, she had never been known to make mischief in families, she was prudent and conscientious, and though always peculiar in her habits and modes of expression, and so wild in some of her fancies, as to be often thought by strangers a little out, she had secured and continued to retain the good will of a great many kindly disposed ladies and gentlemen, at whose houses she was always well received and politely treated. She calculated, in the course of every year, to go the rounds among all these friends, and thus kept up her intimacy with households in every member of which she felt a warm personal interest. Miss Patty labored under one great and absorbing regret, and frequently expatiated to Gertrude on the subject. It was that she was without a companion. Ah, Miss Gertrude, she would sometimes exclaim, seeming for the time quite forgetful of her age and infirmities, I should do vastly well in this world if I only had a companion. And here, with a slight toss of the head, and a little smirking air, she would add in a whisper, "'And you must know, my dear, I somewhat meditate matrimony.' Then, seeing Gertrude's look of surprise and amusement, she would apologize for having so long delayed fulfilling what had always been her intention, and at the same time that she admitted not being as young as she had once been, would usually close with the remark, "'It is true, time is inexorable, but I cling to life, Miss Gertrude, I cling to life, and may marry yet.' On the subject of fashion, too, she would declaim at great length, avowing, for her own part, a rigid determination to be modern, whatever the cost might be. 
Gertrude could not fail to observe that she had failed in this intention, as signally as in that of securing a youthful swain. And she was also gradually led to conclude that Miss Pace, whatever might be her means, was a terrible miser. Emily, who knew the old lady very well, and had often employed her, did not oppose Gertrude's visits to the cottage, and sometimes accompanied her. For Emily loved to be amused, and Miss Patty's quaint conversation was as great a treat to her as to Gertrude. These calls were so promptly returned that it was made very evident that Miss Patty preferred doing the greater part of the visiting herself, observing which, Emily gave her a general invitation to the house, of which she was not slow to avail herself. End of chapter 18